Oh, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would continue to do only two things. First, that you would show us our need for Jesus. And second, that you would give us Jesus. Amen. Have you come in this morning feeling like you're under siege? Something, a person, a circumstance, a relationship, a job, or your past. Something is you trapped, feeling oppressed or burdened or hemmed in. Does something about your life right now feel like it's pressing in on you? Our passage today in Jeremiah 32 relays a point in time in Israel's history, in our salvation history, when the people of God were under siege. And during this time, God does something bizarre through his prophet. In Israel's history, we find ourselves at a real low point. Israel had been trekking along in this uh, mixed existence of following God faithfully and unfaithfully time and again. And Israel still holds close in its memory at this point when Jeremiah is ministering, the golden age that is in its past. Israel remembers the days of David and Solomon when things were going really well, when the religion of God was more pure and less mixed with the pagan religions of the world, and where Israel was the seat of power and everything was going perfectly. But those days were long past. And by now in Jeremiah's ministry, we find at a time in Israel's living moment with God that they're being chastened by God when God sends oppressive nations to them in order to maybe root out the sin and get them to wake up to their need to turn back to him for mercy and grace. God's trying in this moment to get their hard hearts to come back to him. And towards the end of the reign of many, many kings who have been doing evil in the sight of the Lord, as the book of Kings and the books of Chronicles say, we find ourselves in the reign of King Zedekiah, the last king before everything falls apart. And we find ourselves with with Israel being winnowed down to the point that they're in the capital city of Jerusalem and the oppressive nation of Babylon has Israel besieged. They've had Israel, according to how many years Zedekiah's been reigning, Israel's been, or Jerusalem has been besieged for about a year at this point. So you can imagine if you're a city that's closed in and your food supply is getting cut off and everything around you is just sort of staying the same but rotting, you know? You start to get, have this psychology of, of panic. And this is what starts to, to wear into the people of God. Everybody's getting a little agitated, including the king. And the king has these folks that are called prophets who function like political advisors. And Jeremiah is one of these prophets. And Jeremiah, maybe unlike some of the other prophets, is committed to telling what the word of God to him actually says. He's not going to just say what Zedekiah wants to hear. Jeremiah is prophesying something that that God's coming to chasten you. And Zedekiah, it doesn't bode well for you. That's what he's saying. And so Zedekiah has him jailed. So things are just going really badly. Jerusalem's besieged. Jeremiah the prophet's in jail. Zedekiah's miserable. And into this moment, God does something really strange. He sends someone to Jeremiah and says, I want you to buy this piece of property just outside Jerusalem in your hometown. In fact, you need to do it kind of by law. By Levitical law, you need to do this. And you can imagine the hilarity in the moment of Jeremiah's mind. 
hearing the word of the Lord to do something like this at a moment like this. You know, it'd be like Birmingham being besieged and us all living inside the city walls. And God says, and you individual, I want you to go right now buy a house in Woodlawn. I, I would feel like that's pretty trivial at this moment, God. And so this is the moment that we, we find ourselves in. And it's actually a place that you and I can put ourselves in in this moment. Jeremiah becomes a living illustration. And Israel is finally reaping what she has sown. She's suffering the consequences of her sin and her own poor choices, her own wandering away from God. And now Israel is under siege. And I imagine many of us, if we're honest, can relate. Whatever we feel like we're under this morning, we've made more than our fair share of bad decisions, or others have made more of their fair of bad decisions around us that have brought us to this place of feeling like we're under siege. Maybe it's that feeling of suffocation that we've chosen the wrong career path, but we're too far down the road to ever turn back. Maybe it's the heart-gripping guilt of knowing that we've chosen our job over our children. Maybe it's the isolation that accompanies all those late nights looking at things that you know you shouldn't be looking at online. Maybe it's the heavy pressure of mom and dad demanding that you be perfect. Perfect student, perfect grown-up, perfect athlete, perfect prep for college. Maybe it's the daily oppression that you feel because you know as you walk down the street, the color of your skin affects the way people perceive you. Maybe it's that aching sadness that you feel as an older person looking back on life, realizing that it hasn't turned out the way that you had envisioned when you began it. Maybe right now you're experiencing a lot of the success that you've always longed for, and yet finding it surprisingly empty. And suddenly we're realizing that every last one of us is Israel. To be human is to live a besieged existence. And now many sermons and many preachers might look at this passage and tell you, the solution for you today is to be more like Jeremiah. You know, in that moment when all the pressure was on and when things were going rough, Jeremiah stood and in faith did what God asked him to do, even though it was crazy. That might be the temptation to tell you all to be like Jeremiah. But I will tell you, Jeremiah and every other biblical character apart from Jesus is no hero. <laughs> if you read beyond this passage into the later sections of chapter 32, you see a Jeremiah who is completely doubting God. He kind of does what God wants him to do, but he does it very begrudgingly with a lot of questions without a steadfast faith. So being like Jeremiah must not be the answer. He must not be the hero. And you and I shouldn't be just being pointed to this passage to look more like him. This passage actually has a punchline that has nothing to do with Jeremiah and everything to do with God and who he is for people like you and me who are under siege. The punchline is found in verse 15. After God tells Jeremiah to go and buy the field and to make Jeremiah a living illustration, he delivers the big payout. Listen to this. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. 
The scriptures are driving home the point today. God is in the business of making outlandish promises to people who are under siege. God's in the business of making outlandish promises to people who are under siege. Think with me about the game-changing nature of this promise for Jeremiah and the people of God. Imagine with me how this word of promise affects the present circumstances of Israel. To be under siege and to know that this nation is going to breach these walls at any moment and cart us off and probably do horrible things to us and our family and leave Israel utterly destitute, destroy the city, leave our land that God promised to us, you know, totally annihilated. This is the feeling. And into this feeling, God interjects a promise that one day houses, fields will be bought again, vineyards will, will grow, and you will see flourishing once again. It's like the person who's just been diagnosed with cancer, going through the cancerous treatment, and then God delivering this word. On the other side of all this, I promise you, you're going to live. You're not going to die. What does that do to the person under siege? It may not change the present circumstances. You're still going through chemo, right? But it totally lifts and frees your spirit because you know on the other side of this is a promise that can't be taken away that will undo the burdens that I currently bear. This is the power of the promise. And here's what God's great promises do. They unbind our present and our past. They free us. As the theologian Robert Jensen said, the law makes your future bound to your past. But the gospel tells you that your past is determined by your future. The promise to Jeremiah, which was actually a promise to all of God's people, unbound them in the present. The promise made a people yet under siege, no longer subject to the siege. Friends, this is what the gospel does. The gospel, the good news about Jesus, is a promise about the future. Sealed in an earth-altering event of the past, the cross, that has the power to unbind and to free people under siege in the present. Because Jesus died a guilty death in our place and lived the perfect life that we could never live, God in his gospel proclaims his outlandish promise, the forgiveness of sins both now and forevermore, that unlocks and secures all the other promises that he has. One example of a future promise unlocked by God's present forgiveness. Heaven. God has prepared and secured a place for us, a place of perfect peace and joy and fulfillment with him forever. And this future place is secured by his present forgiveness of you and me. And what does this do to people like you and me under siege? It gives us incredible hope. It in some ways relativizes the present because we know the future game plan. That on the other side of all this pain and stress and disappointment, siege is a completely free, perfectly peaceful, eternal experience of what the psalmist calls pleasures at his right hand forevermore. And at once we are still under siege 
And yet the siege is lifted, all because of the promise. One of the primary problems with much preaching today in pulpits worldwide is that unlike God's word to Jeremiah here, we preachers are so reticent to simply let the promise fly. We're too scared to speak God's promises as they're spoken in his word without qualifications, without ifs, ands, buts, or breaks. We're too scared to talk about the free, unmerited grace of Jesus purchased for you and me on the cross. And so we say things like, God says, look at what I've done for you. What have you done for me lately? Christianity in this scheme becomes a motivational religion to clean up your life with a little help from Jesus. He'll get you started and you can finish the job. It's why many of us who have been burned by the church are exhausted by the religious rat race of cleaning up our act. We've heard messages that don't let the promise fly. Those of you who are animal lovers may not like this story, but please forgive me in advance for telling it and for finding it at least a little bit funny. So I had this friend Dave that I grew up with. We were the same age. We kind of did a lot of stuff together. And Dave uh, and his family had this beloved parakeet named Kiki. This parakeet was kind of a green-yellowish color. And, and we grew up in Hawaii, so it was a very fitting environment for a parakeet to be raised. And I imagine this parakeet was a pet store parakeet from, from hatchling age. But this was a family that would let the parakeet's wings grow. And so the wings uh, gave it the ability to fly. And so they'd let it out of the cage and fly around the sort of 10-foot span of their living room, back and forth. And, and uh, we used to play with Kiki all the time. Kiki lived a wonderful kind of hemmed-in existence. But I guess the family loved Kiki enough that they began to say, Kiki is under siege. And Kiki's of age where we need to set Kiki free. And so they decided one day to take Kiki in her cage out to a beautiful jungled region of Oahu, deep in the woods where, where there was just a beautiful idyllic environment where parakeets just look natural, you know. And so they, they settle on this place with a, a beautiful little ravine with a little stream in it and some trees all around. And it's Kiki's moment. They open up the cage door. And Kiki kind of jumps out and sort of looks back and goes, I, you really giving this to me? Like, is this real? Are you going to catch me with a net when I fly like two feet away or something like that? And so Kiki bursts out and flies. And you can imagine what it's like, the, the freedom Kiki's flying for the first time without a wall in front of her. She's flapping her wings. And then they watch Kiki go up, and it looks like this, this beautiful scene of Kiki going forward. And all of a sudden, because Kiki's never flown more than 10 feet in her life, her wings give out because she's never developed the muscles to be able to fly that far. And Kiki takes a straight dive bomb straight into the stream and dies immediately right there. <laughs> uh, and the fate of poor Kiki, which began with a glimpse of freedom, gives way to a perilous, untimely death. And I will tell you that that's the fate of all of us when the sermon doesn't let the promise fly. When it gives us freedom with the right hand, but then takes it back with the left by saying that Christianity is about what Jesus has done for you, but it's also about what you do for Jesus. But as Jeremiah has preached to us, God is in the business of making outlandish promises to people who are under siege. So as we close, 
If you're feeling under siege today, hear afresh these outlandish promises that we'll hear a little bit later as God's very word to you. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. This is a true and trustworthy saying, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with God the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Therefore, there is no condemnation, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed your transgressions from you to remember your sins no more. Let those promises fly. Amen.